Hey everyone, Attorney Shirley here, and I'm back with another episode of Fluid Truth. This is Fluid Truth, and I am your host. We explore a simple question that really does not have a simple answer, and that is, what does equity look and feel like from varying perspectives? The content offered in this segment is personal reflection and interpretation. The views of my guests are not necessarily the views of Fluid Truth or Quinnipiac University. For clarity, this conversation has been edited. I sat down with an amazing man. His name is Mr. Malik Champlain. It had been a long time coming, and those who know us said that we had to sit down. So that's what we did. We sat down in an amazing conversation that really went through how he views equity from his background, from his space of enforcement and safety, into consulting, into his programs for the youth, and what he's pouring into the community right now. It was amazing, and you only get it here right at Fluid Truth. But sit on back and jump in the conversation. And if you have any comments, let us know. But here we go. I am so happy to have my guest, Mr. Malik Champlain. You have been on my mind for months, my brother. And trying to get this conversation has been a work in progress. So I'm so excited that we get a chance to sit down and finally converse. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Uh, the blessings are mine. Uh, the pleasure is too. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I've heard so many great things about you. So being here and, and being a part of the, the podcast, part of the show, I'm, man, look, I'm, I'm excited for the conversation. I'm not even going to spend a lot of time with my intros and my explanation of what we do. I'm jumping right into you. So you know my platform is conversations about equity and how this impacts us and what it looks like in our purview and how our life experience informs it. So I want to get there. But first, tell me about you. Man, I will say this. I'm the unspoken words of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. I represent the brother that rocks chains and those that write checks. So I do a little bit of spoken word, and I love to give that introduction when, when you uh, you think about me, because uh, my name's Malik, right? Malik Champlain. My mother always told me Malik means king, mm. and that was something very important to me, right? Being born uh, in Brooklyn, New York, back in the, the '80s, very Afrocentric, and uh, but me, man, I'm just I'm the lucky husband of Rosalind Champlain and, and the father of three uh, amazing children. Um, I I love my people. I love black people. Uh, I'm a Christian. I'm a deacon at my church. Uh, I'm an activist. And I'm just somebody who just, I want to make sure that my my, my presence and, and the fact that I was here is left. And, and, and the best investment you can have is in people, in loving people and, and, and giving them a, a piece of you. You spoke that so eloquently. And I'm going to need some more spoken word before we walk away. Just I'm just going to put you on notice right now. The thing that's really interesting is investment in people is huge. Mm. It is probably the most satisfying thing that we could do, but by the same token, it's frustrating mm -hmm. because people are people and we come with our stuff. Mm -hmm. So when you think about this whole conversation of equity, and I know when we were talking before, we were considering having a focus on an economic and financial aspect mm -hmm. of equity. So how does that hit you? Equity in whatever form it is, mm -hmm. how does that hit you? Often with the work that I get to do, I have to try to explain what my thinking of equity is to other people. And I like to say uh, for equity, it's kind of like, like, so I like sneakers a little bit. So if you, if we're in this room and there's five of us in the room and we're all going to get sneakers and we all get sneakers, that's equality. But I'm a size 13 in men, right? 
and someone else might be a 10, someone else might have an eight in women, right? So equity is getting what you need and, and what you need not being seen as a deficit. And what it being is that this is what I need. This is what this person needs. And we get that. And the fact is, is that, and it's okay that sometimes that might mean in this aspect of my life or this aspect of my learning, this aspect of my socioeconomic needs, that I get that in a way that it's not the same that you do, but for what you need, you receive. And then I support and champion that for you. I love that. And I know some of the work that you do, you already spoke about many things that you have your hands on and uh, many of the endeavors that you're so um, able to kind of pour yourself into, but your nine to five, you deal with social justice. And how do you take this idea, and I know you said you often have to explain equity to those who you're dealing with, but how do you take this idea of equity in your nine to five, and how do you pour that into both your organization and those that you're working with? I think the when you're talking about equity, talking about social justice, it, it can be something that you know in theory or something that you have in practice. So for me, um, going to the earliest parts of my story, uh, I'm somebody who, who didn't say my first word till I was four. I spoke with a stutter, like a very hard stutter for 10 years. Um, and I remember the equity that I needed in my education, in my speech impediment, in my uh, speech pathology, that was something that was seen as a deficit, right? So I was labeled special ed. I technically was labeled with a learning disability. However, I was able to find some people who, who were pro me, who championed me, who saw me and what I could be. And I think for me, it's about doing this work is so much about seeing what is but seeing what can be and not losing that hope and that optimism and what, what can be if we all can get along in a way of having a shared vision. So, so many times we're caught in the struggle, but, but Dr. King talks about so much about the beloved community. Like, what does that look like, right? What does that look like when we choose community over chaos? What does it look like when we get, what, what, is, what is the promise been looking like? And then also, what is the work that's necessary to get there? So, to your point, the frustration is there. I, just, I, get, I grow so much strength from those who walk before us, right? Because I, I clearly understand that I walk in the footsteps of giants. And I'm not just talking about the, the large people that we know iconically in this country, right? Like, I think about my great-grandfather, Mason, who, who fought in World War II and came back to a country that, that didn't love him nor gave him his GI Bill. The same one that would have furthered his education, would have bought my, my great-grandmother a home, that's something that could have been passed down. Like, I named my son after him. And I think it's so important that I understand that frustration, but he did not give up. When I go deeper into my roots, I can go all the way back to 1743, where in Charleston, Rhode Island, John Bent, a white man, purchased my great-grandfather, named him Prince Bent, and then Prince Bent fought in the American Revolutionary War, documented with George Washington, and in March of 1781 was released. And he fought for himself and for his legacy because he earned his freedom that day. A freedom that was already granted him, to him by God, but the idea is that he had to get it from this country. And then he fought for 20 more years for him to receive his land and everything else that was deserving to him. So when I think about that, and I think about what, what they fought through, what they did, I gained my, my resolve. I am dumbfounded about your knowledge of your own personal history not because I would expect anything less, but so many times the black Americans in this country, we're not 
privy to that information. So I am just, I swell up with pride at knowing that you can carry these stories close to your chest. You can pass these down to your children and your great grandchildren. You mentioned legacy. And I think some of the knowledge of just who you are and the family that you come from and how you come to be where we are right now is part of the legacy as is this economic aspect. You touched on this for your grandfather. And had he been able to be given, you know, what was owed to him, it would have set you up in a different way. It would have set your entire family, your predecessors up in a different way. So this idea of equity and legacy to me are hand in hand and what that looks like. Also, from the standpoint that now standing in our shoes right now, 2023, what are we able to do to impact both the equity and the legacy for our generations coming up after us. What are we able to do? You're blowing my mind right now. Tell me a little bit more about your story. Tell me a little bit more about how you come to where you are right now. In college, you know, I was, um, I fought to get to college, right? I was a kid when I talked about being in special ed. I had to fight again to mainstream classes and I had to fight to prove that I could excel in those classes. I still had some struggles, but the one thing I had was passion, hunger, and drive. And I fought my way to a better GPA and got myself, you know, I could play a little basketball. So I got myself into college and then I fought real hard to be on the dean's list. And then just I fought and I never stopped fighting. I'd always took this idea that I couldn't like my mother had me at 16. Right in Brooklyn, New York, it was just me and her. And um, what I knew was I didn't know a lot. I didn't you know, when you're the trailblazer, you don't get that as a first gen. But what I knew was I couldn't go home and tell her she wasn't worth it. So it drove me to know that there was like, I was gonna get this, right? I was gonna put everything I could into this. So I got my diploma, then I went, got my um, master's degree, and then um, in the middle of my PhD, or, or sorry, my EDD at UConn. My goodness, I'm just glad to see you and you look like you're put together, so it's, it's not bringing you down. But I would say from, from that lens, I understood that like, as I walked into different rooms, um, my angel says that you're one person, but, you represent 10,000 people, right? And I represent those 10,000 people who poured into me, who, who shed blood for me, who died for me. So understanding that is why I have to do what I have to do. So going and doing the work that I've done, I started off in um, education, going back to special ed. I was a special ed teacher, um, giving to those students an opportunity that wasn't given to me, right? Then I moved over to uh, working in law enforcement. Um, probation started something called smart probation. At the time, they were really um, leveraging uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, and they were looking for people with more of a social work, more of an educational background. So I got hired, um, worked there for a couple years. We had some um, layoffs with the state, so then the D Department of Corrections picked me up as a parole officer. They were then switching over to uh, something called EPICS, uh, Effective Practices and Community Supervisions, but similar to probation, they were looking for that same feel. So I ran um, all the halfway houses on the eastern side of the state. So ending from Middletown over, uh, ran five different houses. And with that, you know, you're working with people uh, who are at their lowest. And 80, 90 percent of the job is just people's mental health, getting them employment, all that like Maslow's hierarchy, that those primary needs. But I worked in areas where I knew people, where I grew up. And so it was interesting just to see people that you're like, um, there are times where the, there's the, the letter of the law and then there's the discretion that you can have. And when you're able to provide that discretion, then you can go for treatment versus reincarceration. But there's still times in the system where your hands are tied because it's the policy that has to be 
it has to be followed with fidelity that you can't wiggle that causes for you to make decisions that you feel like your discretion is really limited if not like you know not not present at all uh and i just knew i did so much for about seven years that i just had to get into doing something more about working on the system than in it and that's where i got to working with the, uh, the state education resource center and uh i came very like shout outs to them because i came with a lot of passion i had a lot of like like built up like like i want to do this work and they were willing to back me on that and and since then like i would say we we really have been able to do some great work like in the communities and in some in, in schools and i'm interested just if i can um ask you to go back for a second talk to me about those who championed for you and i know you made mention of that you were able to stand in this place as a special ed um uh, teacher you know early in your career to kind of pour back into individuals you know for maybe it's what you did get maybe it's what you didn't get yeah. and then in probation and pro parole yeah. kind of standing in the gap for individuals and now stepping in onto the policy side yeah. so talk to me about those who really went hard for you even if you're talking about as a child or as an adult mm -hmm. i'm interested in where where this um where this passion is fueled yeah. by by people's desire to assist well i could say if it starts with, you know, my grandmother and my mother, right? My, I lived with my grandmother for a while, and, and uh, when I wasn't talking, I remember every morning she would just be like, you know, I was struggling with words, and she'd be like, good morning, Malik. You know, and I'd be like, good morning, Grandma. And I would struggle through, and she would take so much time, and she had so much patience. I just remember the grace in which she treated me, right? Always felt, like, this love from her. Um, and I got my mother, right? Like, I, like the, when times when the world felt against me, she would, like, rub my head and tell me I was special. Right. Tell me I was going to do great things. Right. Tell me about my history and who I was. And there was something about that, that solid foundation of my roots that let me hold my head up when I wasn't. I didn't feel as if um, the things I was currently doing was deserving of that because I just knew like what pumped in my heart, like what what what, what was in my DNA. Um, but like for people outside the family, I could tell you, Miss Dooley. Right. She still is a teacher at North Free Academy. And I remember her just taking an interest in me. You know, we I was a lock and key kid. I had to go home, take care of my brothers and sisters. So if I got detention, I wasn't showing up. Right. So you wanted to give me in school suspension. That's OK. But I get home. But we not airing our dirty laundry. And she was the first teacher to be like, how come you ain't show up? Like, well, matter of fact, you're going to do a lunch detention. So I'm going to go put my head down. And she said, no, nah, 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 I'm going to talk to you. Right. What's going on? Like, and she actually really talked to me. And she's the first teacher I really opened up to. And then the next day, she started talking about all the things I could do. First teacher was talking about college, things of that nature. And a year and a half later, she was recommending me for honors history class. And like a year earlier, I was in special ed, right? Like, and she just, you can do it. You know, like just kind of just kept pushing me on that. Um, and I think the... The last one I'll give you is this, because I, I have had a lot of people. I've been blessed in that. And I love that you can recall this off the top, and this is not a question that kind of stops you, where you have to sit here and recall and recollect. No. You have this on, on the ready. Because like, in my life, like, I owe them, right? Like, nothing's, no, no, one, no one's ever owed me anything. You know, like, I don't wear the um, your father's not in your life thing as, like, a, something to stop me, but I, I do wear it as, like, no one, no one owes me anything, right? Like, kind of like that, like, He's not walking through the door just to give you something like you got to you got to get this. And when people give me something like I write that like in my heart and uh, and I'll give a big probably the biggest shout out to Tamla Lanier. Uh, she was a probation officer her very first year. 
Um, my stepfather, uh, when we came here from Brooklyn to Connecticut, he was still on probation. He got transferred, and she was his probation officer. And I didn't know that. I thought she was a family friend. And me and her daughter went to school together. We're still friends. And uh, I, I just never knew that until I got old enough when I was like middle middle high school. And I was like, wait, your mom's a probation officer? And then we had a conversation. And I was like, yeah, she was mine. But she would come to the house and she had she would show so much love. She would drop me off sometimes. And, but like she was like a pillar in the community. And she's the one who could talk me into going and being a part of probation because she's like, we need more brothers like you. We need more faces like you. We need more people. Right. Because it's not just the faces. Right. Right. It, it's about the, the experience and, and the understanding of what's needed. Um, and I think that's what led me. And because there were, there were 12,000 applicants for, for nine for nine positions and everybody else who got in there had a, a judge for a daddy, a bail commissioner for an uncle. Everybody got somebody. It's OK. They all got a nice little letters. And I had Tammy. And Tammy vouched for me. She vouched for the type of character I had. I had no experience, in, and she just vouched for the character. She's like, he, he, the stuff that he does in the community, these things. And it went a long way, and it gave me a shot. Um, and she then she mentored me because she was my chief. And I got to see how, how you balance, because she also was the arm of criminal justice for the, the state NAACP. So I got to see how she balanced being a part of the NAACP, but also the chief of this, this agency. And... and and the stuff that she received on both ends, right? Before on the daily at work. And um, it gave me a clear understanding moving forward, right? You have to make a decision sometimes, right? What are you gonna stand for? You know, um, are you gonna play along to get along or are you here to be an agent of change? And, and, and there's stuff that comes with that. You're actually really inspiring me. And outside of this conversation, I feel like I'm gonna take some time and go back and see really who pushed me because it's one thing to go at this by ourselves and you were talking about the resolve that you had and you just never stopped, you never stopped. That's amazing and necessary, but it's a whole nother thing if we talk about the village and if we talk about whatever the capacity is that we're moving in, that we have someone sitting there pushing us, say, come on Malik, come on Cheryl, go on, get up. I know you fell, mm -hmm. but get on up. You're gonna get this little bit of time to recuperate, mm -hmm. but get on up. And I think that's so powerful as, as I'm just thinking about that. But go on. And I, would just, I would add one more thing is that as you're going through it and what you were saying is true because that's what everyone sees from the results. Mm -hmm. But the lived experience is that anything that I've done as an adult, I would not have done without my wife being there. Right. right? Because I have to go out and, and I think you understand that. Like sometimes you have to go out and be Superman. Yeah. I got to put the cape on. But when I come home, like I'm so human. And I need somebody to like, and she understood that early on, like you, you gotta be the one beneath my wings, right? Like you gotta be my rock. You gotta be the one that like, all right, I'm, you're, you're hard on yourself. Maybe you need to be soft. Maybe you're being a little too soft on yourself. You gotta, you gotta remind me who I am, right? You gotta push me when I'm leaving that door because I am human. And I think that, that without that, I don't, I couldn't say what I would be doing, but I, I can promise you she, she does a great job of understanding what motivates me and understanding that, like, I have somebody that, like, unconditionally loves me, but to a point of, like, to, for me to be the best version of me, which sometimes puts a lot on her plate, which which I, uh, I'm forever grateful. You know, a lot of times in conversation that I have, you know, I'm very open, and I want our communication to be open, too. And men oftentimes 
don't make that acknowledgement. So I'm so encouraged that um, you and your wife are playing team sports here in terms of, you know, it's, it's any, either of you at any point who's going to be, you know, the one who's on the forefront. But this has to be a team sport. To go at it alone is hard. It's hard. And we're going to get so much further as a community if we can link up with those who really have our back. So I'm so encouraged by that. Yeah, tell me more. Extremely difficult because I had to, something that she taught me was that I can go and and give everybody my best and come home and give them leftovers. Mm -hmm. And she just, and she had to remind me of that, right? Like Mm -hmm. that I still have to go do that part because if she knows that part, it feeds me. But at the same time, right? Like this is where my pearls lay. This is where my gold is. And sometimes you lose that in the work. You lose that in the the fight for other people. You lose that in like what you're, you're, you're pushing. And it's like, I never want to be in a place where I have my priorities that jacked up. But you know, you gotta think, we're in like maybe like, I mean, we've been dating and together since 24. So so we're at a place now where I'm like, that was a while ago, but it, it was something early on that she gave me that helped direct me as I continue to add, to, to give my, to let my yes be yes and my no be no. This is truly value added for many years and I know you were telling me um, a little bit about some of the many aspects of work that you do. And we've only just just barely touched on one. This is your professional side. There's a whole other aspect that I'm certain that you're endeavoring to do and you're pushing forward and still having that base for home. But tell me about some of the, um, oh, let me make sure I'm getting it right. It's the fatherhood manologues and under the manhood tree. So tell me about that as you're, you're making reference to the family and reference to being a dad and a husband. One of the things that we talk about a lot um, in my household and as well in the, the, the community that I've been able to build um, in relationship to who I am is that Kwanzaa should be celebrated all year round, right? And when we look at those, those seven principles of Kwanzaa, one of those being, right, like that economic empowerment and that, that idea of um, purpose and faith, right? We're talking about Kujijakalia. We're talking about Ujoma. We're talking about Nia. That's my, my middle daughter's name. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Imani, right? Like, So when we're doing this, we have the economics. We also have the part of being able to push the narrative mm-hmm. of who we are as black fathers. And I, I want to give a big shout out to, I'm, I'm always trying to collaborate and, and, and then give just due to the people who have done it. So Abdul Rahman Muhammad, uh, he's my people, my people's clinical services. So he is the head of the manhood tree, and um, he is the the architect, you would say, of all this. And he's the type of brother that he has such great plans and ideas, and and we kind of foam like Voltron, and we come together. And he got uh, ten about three years ago. He got ten black fathers to uh, come together, and we did a performance at St. Joe's, and we were able to. Um, just tell our stories about being our father or being fathered. And then since then, um, and mind you, that, that was the, the anniversary of his, his father's death. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, we, we like to every every year pay respect to that and the, uh, the man that gave us the man that we have now. Mm-hmm. Um, and we think that's so powerful. But being able to tell our stories and, our, and the narrative of our stories without someone else, from like raw, right? Like from an understanding that, you know, we're not perfect, but like, we're trying from from an aspect of the things that we were missing with things that we hope for the things that we fear so i can tell you my first manologue was really about um talked about the importance of of speaking to your children while they're still in the mother's womb you know uh so my i have two girls and i was having a son 
And my wife's about six months pregnant. We were about to have this performance. And I just started talking to him. And just wrote down some of the things I talked about and then wrote a piece about it. And just talked about my hopes, my fears, because, you know, Lord willing, I get to see him grow to be a man. But if I don't, I want him still to know these things, right? Like, I want him to know, right? Never, never shake a man's hand when you're sitting down, right? I want him to know that he wears a crown, right? I want him to know, right? I didn't name you my junior because I wanted you to have your own wings, right? Like, I, I want you to know how to stand tall, right? Ten toes down. Like, I want you to know sometimes the world's going to look at you a certain way, right? But you get to define yourself, right? Like, I want like, there's so many things I want to tell him. And I just put it in that poem so that sometimes, like, what we put on, what we create and put out there can live longer than us. So I think that was so important for me, right, to that aspect. So with the fatherhood being long. So let me circle back again, because you just said something that just sparked and brought it back to this idea of legacy. And as you said, the words that you speak, they, they have a life of their own and they live. And it's amazing that we're able, and we're in this, this time and space where we can create um, this narrative that lives beyond us. So how important is it to you right now to continue to change that narrative, to continue to kind of pour into what your kids may be called or may not be called, what they will see, you know, for your grandkids, for your great grandkids. How important is, is that for you right now? It's everything, right? Like I've, I've lived a life, but I've understood that um, in order for us I've understood that there have been so many people who have walked before me that had to sacrifice for me to have. I fully and endearingly like understand and accept that sacrifice for mine. Um, I view myself now as I project what I'm what I'm wanting to be, which is the patriarch, right? Like we have steps from being a boy to a man, from being a man to a mentor, and then mean from from being a mentor, being the patriarch. So if you're starting with the end in mind and you're re, you know, re-engineering and you're looking at it and you're going, how do I, like, I have value to give them. How do, how do I give it to them? So it goes into some of the piece of the economic uh, empowerment, which is I go around teaching about social justice, racial equity, and a lot of things, but similar to Dr. Claude Anderson's Poweronomics, right? We as a people, as a collective, have to be a part of our economic freedom because as long as we don't have that, then we can't truthfully have our own voice. So I live a life now where I've been able to create enough from different avenues of of wealth building where I do this work with Cirque because I want to, because I love it. So that means I get to do it from a voice that's not passive but timid. That's not one that says, if you don't pay me in two weeks, I can't. We, we don't operate like that. And, it, and if I feel like I have to compromise myself, I'll just stay at home with my son. Right. Like that's not that's not how I operate because I don't have to operate that way. That's a position of power. Correct. No, truly. And, and not to um, mistake that for anything having to do with politics necessarily, but power that's internal. That is your individual power that you're exerting to say that the work that you do is because you desire to. And you have some other things set up because you had that foresight, because you're re-engineering it, because you're, you know, working it backwards, or maybe it's forwards in this case, um, to get to that point where you can exist in your power. That's a strong space for me. And, and I'm really curious if you could even speak more about that connection of that power space mm-hmm. and economic empowerment and how that works for especially our community. So 
if I may add one more thing, if you don't mind, Malik, there's so many people that are not able to sit in that seat of power that they have to go. And if they don't go, if they speak up on the job, they're challenging the meals for the next month. They're challenging their kids' tuition. They're challenging, you know, the ability to make their rent or mortgage payment because we don't sit in the seat of power. So speak to me about that a little bit. I think it goes to my idea of blame versus responsibility, right? Um, when I was in that seat and I couldn't do that because I couldn't do that for a while, mm-hmm. I was res- I was accountable, though, for um, what was coming up. And I think, like, what I mean by that is that when you give blame to something, you, you take away accountability. When you're responsible for the, the impact and the intent and the impact, then you're going to have a different level of accountability to that. So for me, it's like I am responsible for, right, I am fully and utterly responsible for, for like, for my wife, for my children, mm-hmm. for, that, for my community, mm-hmm. right? So with that, I have to figure out a plan because I, I, was, I was born to lead. Like when I say Malik means king, it wasn't it wasn't one of those things of like I am high and mighty. It's that you were supposed to lead, and and if I'm supposed to lead, I have to figure out a way. I have to figure out a way where I have a trucking company where, right, I, I'm able to hire brothers who have a background, right. I'm able to with some of the real estate flips that I can put brothers on to go ahead and flip a property. You you can. Right. And it's not just about me. It's about right. The community, too. So when we're doing that and we're trying to figure some things out, I have an investment group called Ashe Investments where we just took seven black families from a, a, a black book club that we have and said, hey, look, we're going to figure it out. We're going to start saving our money together. We've been saving for about two years. We've got 50,000 saved up, which is great as a group. Right. And we've been educating ourselves, reading books. we got two people with uh, Arunin out of the Hartford Land Bank. we got two people in his cohort right now to be real estate developers. Right. And we're talking about and we're just talk, we're talking about blue collar, like we're seven families and just saying, like, can we pull our money together? Right. And then create some like real not just economics, but also economics that's about the community. Can we redevelop the community? Can we go ahead and and, and get people not just a, a place to live and generate wealth, but also something that's respectable and something that right like is about and from the people from the community? I think that's so important. And I think lastly is that. I fought so much for so many other people. Not not saying it like that, but like I was when we had when Trayvon Martin happened, I took the bus down to DC to fight for Trayvon's law, right? When Eric Gardner happened, right, I went out to New York City. We marched from Washington Square to Park Ave, right? Like screaming for justice. When George Floyd happened, I worked with an organization called the Black Man Can. Uh we put on ten days after the situation happened, after his murder. We put on an online institute for 300 black boys in New York City where we had Dr. West Bellamy come out there and give a speech to them. Four years before that, Dr. West Bellamy had us, six months before Charlottesville happened, had us out there doing a Black Man Can't Institute where we went and spoke to young black men and boys right in that community but had to have security detail. Right, just six months before the incident even happened. When they had the situation with Mike Brown out in Ferguson, Three months later, they flew us out there to work with the young men and, and especially within the community colleges around some social emotional learning and just working with that population. And during that time, we went prayed at his memorial and we went to go get something to eat. And on the way to get something to eat, you got 12 brothers in peacoats. Mm-hmm. We get pulled over, put on the ground, guns drawn. Just for 20 minutes later for them to come back 
tell us it was a mistaken identity. They got the wrong vehicles. We're, in re- we're renting cars. We, had, we rented two black Tahoes with 12 brothers in Picos and suits just to get up and say we can go on our way. Right after, right after we prayed. And in the midst of this turmoil, in the midst of, we're living trauma. We, I mean, that's something for us to touch on hopefully before you walk away but in the midst of all of this mm. you were told that you fit the description that doesn't make any sense the, the saddest part is that that's when I would when I would walk, walk the streets of New York when I walk the streets of, of New London or North Connecticut that's not nothing new that's the part about it and that's the part that makes me recall that although we're in our our bubble we're at the space of education we're at this place where we have platforms we're able to go and do and touch the community and and be advocates and activists but by the same token sometimes you'll fit the description and i'm just so thankful that it hasn't become anything more mm-hmm. than you know 20 minutes later they're letting you go mm-hmm. but what happens for those individuals that in those 20 minutes it's high emotion it's high tension we're recalling situations that happen over and over and over again we're recalling what happens to our parents or what happened to our parents and our ancestors what happened to those what happens to those brothers that are in that situation when rage just comes in from all sides what happens to those brothers i can i can promise you this i've been i've been in two situations that got a little iffy but i because some days it's no some days is some days is like, especially when you don't like when you don't have much. And I remember like when I didn't really like I didn't have the family yet. I didn't. Some days is like, all guys my pride, and you're not taking that today, right? Like I had a lot this week, and today, right? T- today, you're not just checking my bag. Today, you're just not gonna talk to me like I'm some little boy, right? And Unless you've been in that, right? Because we're not given that idea, right? Like, I'm 6'5", 300 pounds. I got to smile every five seconds while I'm in certain places. Just to make, sure, make other people feel happy, right? Like, but some days, right? And and that's where it's like finding your voice. So, to, nowadays, some days I, I don't got an inside voice. I don't, I, don't got, I don't got a white people voice. My boss, I got a my voice. And you can like it. You don't have to like it. It's okay. It's not for everybody. But I get to be human. And most days, yeah, I'm a pretty happy, optimistic guy. But some days, right? Some days it's a lot. And some days I like I get to I get to just be me. And I think that like that's one of the things that we we tell us that we're not allowed, you know, um, because we're afraid of the repercussions of that. And I think that goes back to again to what you were saying. I love this idea that equity sits in the space where you ask the question blame versus accountability Mm -hmm. so accountability is is community driven it's your family driven it's you're taking up this this um, torch of leadership not just for you but those who are coming behind you and because not only are you accountable to those in your space Mm -hmm. you're setting this this tone for those to come and now you're becoming a leader in this area I think that's amazing in terms of um, when we think of economic equity I wonder if that's where we need to start. Mm. And you're talking about some of that great work that you're doing with communities and families that you're you're working with. But and do we need to start there? And something that we can do as simple is that during the pandemic, during 2020, we um, not myself. I give a big shout out to my brother Dem- Demetrius Chambly, right out of Hartford. He has a, a beauty salon, um, Madam's Beauty Salon, and 
he started something called the 20 for 20 out here, right? We need 20 black people to go to a black owned business and spend $20 at least. And we were, and we were flooding places. They were making an extra 15, 2000, $3,000. And then we would even right give some feedback or we would learn some nuggets from them, but we would conversate with the owner, let them know we're coming in. Mm-hmm. Hey, look, we're coming. We're bringing some people. And every time they're like, Oh, okay. And we will come. We got 50 people coming. Right, we got sixty. People. We got people donating because they can't come. It's a game changer. And it's a game changer. And then there's, bu- there's brothers in Philly doing the same thing. There's some brothers out in LA doing the same thing. And now we're able to connect and, and show love, right? Because we're being purposeful with our dollar. Because all you keep hearing is, keep keep giving me the statistics. How fast the money come out? How did? Look, how about this? Look at your own, your own, like how you spend your money for the month, and ask yourself, right? Could I go to a black-owned business? Like my me like me and my wife, my girls need hair products. I need bear products. Cool, I'm gonna go 15 minutes and go see my brother shop because I know that that money is going to a black family that needs it, that can take it, right? I'm gonna go and when we meet up, we're gonna go eat, right, at a black owned spot. And then once again, it's not against anybody. It's pro. Because nobody else has to have that explanation for why they support people that look like them, that have the same cultural experience. Really. But sometimes in our community, in the black community, we feel like we have to justify it. Mm. We've been taught differently. But so we have to unlearn so much of this. Unlearn. But, and you get to choose. Mm. Is it is it by design or default? Now, one more thing that I'm thinking is, it's hitting me in the face for all the right reasons, for all the right reasons. But as we talk about, you know, we talk about your background, your career, legacy work, how you've come to this place because people are pouring into you. But what I'm taking away is this underscore with all of this aggregate of your your experiences. What you're pointing us towards right now is this accountability that we have in changing the narrative. And changing the narrative, we're doing this through economic empowerment. Tell me what's your plans for moving forward? What what do you see? Because, you know, we're, we're re-engineering yeah. and we're backwards or forwards engineering. Depends on how you think about it. But um, tell me your plans for in the next few months to years how do you want to impact our 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 own little community with economic empowerment so first and foremost i got started at home and i think it's um we talk a lot about generational wealth but we got to talk about regenerational wealth so regenerational is giving the children the blueprint and then also understanding my kids know like i i I keep it real with them like i have three unemployed people living in my house (laughs) me me and your mama make money so me and your mama getting steak we made spaghetti meatballs for y'all I just want to keep it real. Like, look, I just want to be. But at the same time, right, we just told you before we came, we went to go eat. And my daughter's a foodie. I said, cool. So let's start, let's start a little TikTok and make you a food critic. Because you love you love to critique. Let's look at your strengths. Let's, let's talk about that. All right, cool. I need you to put together a business plan. But she knows what one is because we talked about that. And she's under 10 years old. She's right. Like, mm-hmm. But when, when we go, I got two older ladies at, at a property I have. That's still, those are the only two people I go collect my rent from. But I still go because they love to give my kids stickers and stuff. But then she starts to ask different questions. Well, why do we, well, we want to give them a safe place to live in. But at the same time, for, for that safe place, they give us this money. And with this money, you think because we made, you know, $3,000, you think that's all going in daddy's pocket. It's not. All right, let me show you. All right, 200 is going here. 300 is going here. Right? This is how much we actually make. But let me show you what we're going to now put this money into. Let me show you your Fidelity account, where we now we have your Consodio account, where we're putting money into. What what's the stock you want? What's something you like? What's something you see? Let's talk about it, right? Such a game changer to pour into your kids at this level, where 
um, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I think I got this when I was getting my MBA. I think that's where I got some of this, this um, the thought process of taking an asset and breaking it down. I didn't get this in high school. Unfortunately, I was not able to get it at home. Our circumstances were a little bit different. I didn't get it in college. So for you to be able to pour that into your children is a game changer. And that's truly going to engineer the next generation. It really is. And then it goes to spreading it to the community. Right. And being able to to work that that out. So I would say for me, it's creating I'm big on like intellectual property and creating some courses that are going to allow more kids and more people and parents. Because if you empower the parents, they can empower the children. Right. And it's so important to do that. But also for me, it's really getting into um, real economic development and understanding um, not just from like I've been able to to acquire properties and, and understand the schematics around reconstruction and, and, and having something that builds my wealth. But how do you really change the way in which we can turn renters into buyers, right? How can you really go into a place and be like, and, and talk more about development and, and how you can really, you know, when you go to Hartford and like Hartford, like less than 25% of the residents are homeowners, right? So then you look at something like that and you go, once again, like, is that someone else's responsibility or, or is that mine? Like, is that something that I can do? I build some relationships. I know some people politically. Let me leverage that. Let me meet with some people. Right. Let me figure out where I can go with that. Um, You know, that's something that I'm really big into. And then, you know, getting some more into some of the tech space. You know, I have a software right now that I license that um, that I do around helping businesses grow their business credit and and going through like these four steps. And it is like an online platform. And then I help them. We help guide them along the process. So something like so something like that is something just learning and scaling. So I'm always trying to grow and develop those things. I love it. I love how you're taking these very proactive and practical steps to change the conversation. So it's not just tools that we were given. You're taking your God-given talent and being creative in this space mm-hmm. to to change what is being even offered to the community, to the public, to our kids, to their kids, you know. Um, I love that. And, and again, it wraps around for me for economic empowerment mm-hmm. and how that is that space of equity. I still need you to spit a couple more bars. It's funny. I'm like, uh, I'm thinking of one that I have. One day when I was driving, my daughters were looking out the window and they said, Dad, how come I can't have hair like Ariel from The Little Mermaid? And I said, young queen, don't you know how beautiful you are? Your hair defies gravity and it grows towards the stars. Your skin, that perfect combination of melanin. It absorbs the energy of the sun. Young queen, you were designed by the creator. You are one of one. One day you'll understand the saying that the blacker the berry, the sweeter the juice, the darker the flesh, and the deeper the roots. Young queen, that is a crown on your head. There is royalty in your blood. You hold the cradle of civilization. You were not born to be passive. Black girl, you are magic. I know because I'm your father. And I see your mother's strength and elegance in you. I know because I'm your father. And I've been telling you affirmations since you were two. I know because I'm your father. And I love and adore you. Thank you. You're going to make me cry up in here, but that's okay. I'm going to keep it together. That's beautiful. And I hope every young queen will hear that. If not from this platform, and if not from you speaking it into them, that they hear it elsewhere. But Malika, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for being your authentic self mm. and bringing everything that you did um, in this conversation that's so very robust. Mm. And we can go on to talk, and, and we actually should, because there's a lot of work to be done. Mm-hmm. And to take our 400 
ish years mm. and to quantify that for success we have some things that we have to do in peeling back the onion varying aspects of this onion mm -hmm. so I'm excited about the work and I'm happy to connect with you and I, I'm I'm very excited that we'll get to do a chance to do some things together absolutely and I just want to say thank you so much for this platform for giving individuals like myself a, a voice because sometimes the best ability is availability and for people being able to hear what it is that's going on in the community, and, and we know how many times the media have been used against us. So to have something like this that we can chew on, that we can look at and, and connect with people and be like, hey, you know, and, and build and, and be encouraged and empowered from, thank you so much. Appreciate it. As we walk away, and thank you so much, where's the way that they can get up with you? What's the best way to connect? Yeah, um, so for me, it's you can uh, catch me on uh, Instagram at, uh, at Leverage with Malik. That's where you're going to get a bunch of tips on uh, a lot of business stuff. Um, but from a um, more from a, a social justice and equity and, and um, from that lens, uh, you can just Malik Champlain at Gmail. Um, we got a lot of things going on in February. So if you want to tap in and, you know, um, or you're trying to reach out, let, let me know. And whether it's the manologues, whether it's, it's um you know, coming to uh, support an event, all those things. Like, we're, it's the community. I love it. I'm going to put these in the show notes. Thank you again for being here. Thanks for listening in today. Special thanks to our executive producer, David DeRoche, and the amazing team at Quinnipiac University. Music is provided by Audio Hero from their Jazz Lounge album. You can connect with this show on Instagram at Fluid Truth. That's F-L-U-I-D-T-R-U-T-H. To learn more about all of our podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. You can listen to our podcast on the platform or app of your choice. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at QUPodcast. If you have a story to share or you have something that you want to talk about, find us on social media or just shoot us an email. The address is qupodcast at qu.edu. Well, all right, that's it for the day. Till next time.